everybody, and welcome to another episode of Network Classics PTSM. Uh, this is uh, a new episode we've added to our, our weekly content, the family of PTSM, and I've really been having a blast doing these. Uh, the first one we did, we did Saturday night's main event, and that was fun, and then last week we did one on a Superstars episode, WWF Superstars, and so this time out, uh, we thought we'd do another episode of Raw. Now, if you remember... I already did a little watch-along for the first episode of Raw. So, uh, for this edition, we're going to do the second episode, the, the number two uh, show, the second one that took place uh, of Raw, Monday Night Raw, at the Manhattan Center in New York City. And if you'll recall, back then, Monday Night Raw replaced Primetime Wrestling, which had been on the USA Network for about eight years. And they wanted to do something new, and they came up with this concept to do, they wanted it to be really exciting. They wanted it to be in a small venue, which uh, the Manhattan Center didn't hold a lot of people. So that they thought this would be, uh, you know, a great, great uh, new program that they would have. And, and it really, I'm telling you, from the first one, you could tell they had something special going on because that uh, that little venue kind of took people back a little bit to the, you know, the old studio shows. But of course, they brought in, you know, the the production techniques that uh, the WWF had at the time where they you know, lit the whole audience and had all kinds of great graphics and music. And it, it, was, uh, it was exciting, It really, uh, right from the beginning. Now, um, then, when they started it, you know, Vince, of course, always trying to do new things. Uh, he brought in Rob Bartlett, who was a comedian, and he was, uh, did a local radio show uh, back, back in the day in New York City. And Vince really liked this guy. He was a personality that was on radio in New York. And so he brought him on along with Randy Savage. And Macho Man Randy Savage was uh, not really wrestling that much at the time. They were do, were working some angles with him. But uh, Randy was also doing commentary. So that was uh, really interesting. But uh, anyway, uh, getting back to Raw and what it would become, uh, as I said, they wanted to do something in a small venue. And they were going to be shooting these every week, every Monday at the Manhattan Center, but they would, of course, they would do a live taping and then they would tape other episodes as things would go on. And then and then they started realizing that it was getting more and more difficult as far as uh, logistics went at getting people into New York City to do these. So, of course, they eventually would start taking the show on the road. But initially, this is what they were doing with these episodes. And um, God, as uh, it went over in the years, they would end up not only taking these, these uh, shows to you know places all over, the country, they would also take it to other countries. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm referring to Wikipedia here, so knows, who knows exactly how accurate the, these are. But, but it's, you know, they're talking about, you know, Canada, they have places, United Kingdom, Afghanistan in 2005, Iraq in 2006, 2007, South Africa, Germany, Japan, uh, Italy, and Mexico. So it really became um, truly an international show. And it was uh, just amazing. I, I think at the beginning, they didn't have any idea where this was all going to, to go. I mean, it was just a new idea, and they wanted to see if it would take off, and then it became the center of the Monday Night Wars. So uh, it, was, it was just kind of amazing to be, be there at the beginning of all this because they didn't really know what they had, and look what it's turned into to this day. It's kind of the flagship. So um, uh, this second episode is uh, really interesting because, as I said, they were trying to, they're kind of feeling their way through this. And um, Rob Bartlett, who really did not know anything about wrestling, um, he, he, he <laughs> and, and you know, if you, you listen to the episode, we had him on, and we also did a watch-along. He did the watch-along with that Saturday Night's Main Event. But he, he, he admitted that. And, um, you know, he was on that radio show with Don Imus, and he was very funny. I mean, really, he was a very uh, funny comedian. But... Uh, his comedy didn't, I don't know how to put it, didn't really go over well. And uh, as they saw in the coming weeks, but here he's, he's, he's feeling his way through it. And they got Randy Savage. So this episode took place, it was, uh, took place on January 18th, 1993. And this was right before the 1993 Royal Rumble, which took place that, that following Sunday, January 24th at the Arco Arena in Sacramento. So they were setting up a few things, but as I mentioned, this was taking place at the Manhattan Center in New York City and with that announced team, Vince, Randy, and Rob Bartlett. And uh, it, uh, 
we're gonna we'll roll it here in a couple minutes. But it, it had a few things going on. Um, you know, they they always had some kind of a when they did in the opening, there was going to be something to you know set up uh, an ongoing storyline, which they did at the beginning of this because uh, uh, the Repo Man. Now you guys all know Barry Darso, uh, who who, be, who became the Repo Man. Not not uh, one of his greatest gimmicks, but uh, he did what he could with it. And that, of course, was coming off being a part of, uh, you know, demolition. They didn't really know what to do with Barry then. Bill Eady was gone. It never worked with Crush. They, they, you know, initially they were hoping that maybe they could team those two up and they could keep demolition going, but it, it just didn't work. So he's got this new gimmick going on, Repo Man, and uh, he has he'll ha- he has a little thing going on with Randy, Randy Savage. So that's kind of a re- they would have a recurring theme that would kind of go through the whole show with with. Uh, with somebody in this case, it was going to be Repo Man. Uh, I got involved in a little bit of that. Um, also, you know, terrific Terry Taylor versus Mr. Perfect in this episode. We'll see that. And uh, there's a Bret Hart interview. And then Marty Jannetty is there. And this is at a time when, uh, you know, they'd kind of pitted Shawn Michaels and, and Marty Jannetty against one another. The Rockers had uh, splintered. And uh, we know what happened after that. Uh, also, um, we would see, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I do an interview with Repo Man and then El Matador versus Ric Flair. Now that, that had something happening with Mr. Perfect involved with Mr. With Ric Flair, which would, uh, you know, if you remember back, it, uh, you know, Ric Flair was with the WWE, but, uh, it was not a, a, a long stay and we'll, we'll, we'll get to, uh, more of that. So this was, was, uh, really um, it was a fun episode, and I'm hoping that all of you are tuned in. I, I love to have these little uh, intros because it gives you guys time to get all queued up. And uh, I'm hoping at this point. Now, the best way, this is the way I found it, because sometimes it's, it's hard to find stuff on the network, is I just went to uh, uh, In Ring on the network, and then I just uh, put in there uh, the uh, Raw episodes. You know, you click on that box, it's got the uh, Raw icon. And uh, everything's there by date. And so uh, this was this was saying, you know, it was the El Matador Ric Flair match, but it really it's the whole episode. But I don't know how, whatever way you need to get to it, but it's that uh, episode that took place on January 18th, 1993. Okay? So uh, I'm hoping at this point, and if not, make sure that you get queued up and just get right to 0000, 000, 000, 000 on the counter there. And this uh, runs for about 45 minutes, just uh, short of 45 minutes. So if you need to get queued up, do it now. I will wait. Just pause and uh, get ready to get uh, queued up. And then I will count us down. Three, two, one, play. Okay, but uh, go ahead and pause right now. And we'll wait and you get queued up. Zero, 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 zero. And then we'll go. Okay, pause. All right. You're all queued up, right? Good. So, what do you say? Let's get to it. I'm getting ready to press play. Here we go. Three, two, one, play. All right. See, now, big pop here, and that's great. They have this big, wide, big, wide shot of the Manhattan Center, and they get right to it. Got sirens going. That's a cold open, as they say, okay? So, we got Rob Bartlett, Vince McMahon, and Randy Savage. Now, if you guys remember back, there's Rob Bartlett, and he's ripping up a picture of Bobby Heenan, and he says, fight the real enemy. Oh, okay, and I'll explain that in a second. But then, remember I mentioned Repo Man was going to be a part of this? So we we get this little storyline running through this episode as Repo Man comes in, smacks Randy Savage from behind, and uh, that will kind of set up that for the evening. And, uh, you know, they're trying to set up a little storyline between those two. And... Macho Man will talk about that uh, that was one of the hardest ambushes that he'd ever felt. Who knows if it was working, but uh, it did look like he smacked him pretty good. Look at this open. I always love this open. Yeah. Look at this. You know, we're talking 1993. This was very edgy stuff, right? With that music. And I'll tell you, you know, who's behind all this? Kevin Dunn. Kevin Dunn, not only, uh, you know, a great executive with the company, he risen to the very, very top, but at the time he was a producer and he was a talented producer. And see, they had it all, you know, like that feel of that ring. They'd have the ring girls, 
that would just march around with the placards, get raw. And there is terrific Terry Taylor. And in 93, this was a a second return for Terry. Because if you remember when he was there before, uh, and he doesn't like to talk about it, trust me, I wouldn't go up to him and ask him about it. Uh, People have uh, relayed that they have not gotten a very warm reception when he goes up and wants to talk to them, talk to him about the Red Rooster. Um, You know, and and, uh, I can understand that, but as uh, many other wrestlers have said, you know, you work with what you got. And uh, obviously, Terry Taylor was never really into ever wanting to sell the Red Rooster, but, you know, it was a paycheck. And there's Mr. Perfect. This is a 93-man Kurt. Looks great. As you know, I always love Mr. Perfect. Now you hear Vince there saying that uh, Randy has uh, gone off in search of Repo Man after getting ambushed. Now, you know these these matches. You know they uh, they they usually they pitted you know superstars against superstars in this. They didn't bring out jobbers or enhancement talent because uh, they really wanted to give the crowd. You know, and I'm not talking just the crowd at the Manhattan Center, but people watching this. Uh, and this was kind of where they started begin started to begin to realize. Remember, and I've talked before. Like if you saw the uh, Superstars episode we did, Superstars and Challenge were just complete promotional tools, and so they would. And it was a way to just show off the talent uh, and the personalities. But they started to realize the um, the importance of television, and uh, as far as you know, viewing audience and ratings and what that meant for your advertising and where you could really make a lot of money off advertising, which switched, you know, changed the whole concept of how they, uh, you know, went into this. And this was, this was far along into it, but uh, this was one of those programs where they really started to deliver as far as, uh, you know, some great matches with superstars going against other superstars. And I love to tell that story that uh, when we had Nelson Swegler on, who was, um, production coordinator, among many other things that he did for the WWF. And Randy did not like his hat being gone. It's for a a very big reason. Uh, I don't even have to tell you, I'm sure. But but as uh, as I was mentioning, you know, Nelson Swigler said that when they first started the, you know, a lot of these programs and they had, uh, you know, when they went syndicated a lot of these shows like Superstars and Challenge, and they would have holes in there for commercials, which the stations could sell and, you know, put time in them. But there was also spots that the WWF retained. And initially what they would do with them, they would just use them for to promote a live event. Well, he had said to Vince, you know, maybe we can get some sponsors of our own. And Vince had said to him, we're in the wrestling business. We're not in the advertising business, which <laughs> changed dramatically as the years went on. I mean, come on. Uh, just, you know, Slim Jim, uh, you know, all the video games and everything. Okay, so listen to this. You can barely hear it, but that's Bobby Heenan who got on the phone. Remember now what was going on. Bobby had been banned from Raw. So Bobby was, you know, I mean, this was an actual phone call that they patched in because, you know, they're talking and they're conversing. It wasn't something that they had taped or anything like that. So it was, you know, kind of an interesting concept. And I think they have another phone call coming up later on. Yeah. <laughs> You're a Bobby there. And, and, and this is another thing that, like, taking taking commercial breaks during matches. Now, you saw that on Saturday night's main event, 
and uh, you know it it kind of you know it was kind of like one of those things where they would tape these like they were live to tape right I mean they were but or live you know but the the point was though you had to take you had to have breaks built in here so it was kind of like one of those things you ever heard of the red hats with football games they have a guy on the football field who tells you when you're in break and when you're out of break. It was kind of like that in these matches. And so the guys, when they were in commercial break, would just, you know, they didn't do any big high spots. They just kept the match going. And then when they came back in, they would pick it right back up where they were. And that's how, how they did these. But Terry Taylor was, you know, he could, these, you know, he was a great worker. Well, they hung up on Bobby Heenan. But it was just another element that they added to these. And so this is uh, an angle that they got going. What they bring out, you know, they got uh, Mr. Perfect facing uh, Terry Taylor. But the whole idea of this was to uh, set up this angle that Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect have. Now, as you remember... Perfect, uh, you know, at one point was connected with Flair. They were allies. And as that went south, you know, as uh, they, they were building up this angle for the two of them that would, uh, you know, end up with a, a, a match that uh, would eventually see Ric Flair leaving the WWE. Oh, so, so close. Oh, no. Ah, oh, Mr. Perfect could sell, couldn't he? And then, you know, these are great punches. I mean... And guys, I hope you'll uh, bear with me today. My voice is uh, a little off, as you probably uh, have gathered, but it's been a, r- a rough couple of days. Got a oh, perfect. Could I love the way he throw these punches? Look at this. Look. Oh, so Randy Savage back at ringside here, but as I said, they're going to have uh, more with uh, Repo Man. See, and then you got they had all hands on deck for these episodes. Ric Flair, and then of course Terry Taylor taking advantage of that. Oh, Flair drops the robe. You know, Flair was in pretty good shape for this uh, at this point. And of course, Hebner not uh, witnessing any of this. <laughs> ah, he seasoned him up here. Perfect gets in the block. The superplex in, and of course, takes care of Terry Taylor. Not so terrific as uh, Perfect goes after Ric Flair. So, um, you know, this was going to to go on between the two of those guys. And, uh, yep, there's another placard girl here. Monday Night Raw. You know, and it just, (laughs) you couldn't get away with this stuff then, but it's like Vince salivating. Over a ring card girl. Lord Alfred, Lord Alfred in the intro on that, loved hearing his voice. Oh, Ico Pro, integrated conditioning programming. Integrated program, I mean. And look at Slim Jim. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, Randy made a lot of money off those beef sticks. I don't know if that was a great idea or not having him hawking Ico Pro before he came out. Maybe that was intended. I don't know. But uh, that's a whole other story with what happened with uh, the WBF and Ico Pro. Vince getting into the supplement business didn't go so well. Vince, you know, Vince was great at these. I really, I like these uh, interviews that he would do with superstars. Did them rarely. Didn't do a lot of them. You know, the Hart family often got involved in uh, these angles. You know, as they're talking about uh, him taking on uh, Razor, this uh, the Intercontinental Championship, of course, going to be on the line. No, he was a great Intercontinental Champion, too. (laughs) Kick you down on Conscious Street. You know, and that was, yeah, I, I love those in-ring interviews. I, I uh, wish we would have done more of them. I wish that Gene and I would have had the opportunity to do more of those. But, you know, most of the time it was backstage. He always gave me the creeps. Had luck on hunger. Yeah. So, you know, that was the, the, the WWF, WWE, you know, really has, has, uh, been involved in great causes forever. I mean, that's, that was always a huge part of, uh, of the company. And I, re- I remember back, you know, back then, uh, that they were always having us involved in doing something, uh, to raise money for kids. That was always a big part of it. And, you know, it, it's it's great. It's a great image for the company, but I know it was really important. Like Sue Aitchison, you've, uh, she was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. Uh, she took that all very seriously and, and grew it to what it is today. And uh, really, it was that headlock on hunger and, you know, all the other things they've done over the years. It is a company that really has, I, I, I don't know if they've ever added up the, the amount that they've raised for charities, but I know it's got to be, in the uh, millions and millions of dollars.
Marty Janetti, back then, you know, got the Rockers outfit on there, uh, taking on Glenn Ruth here. And if you would have heard at the beginning of that, that uh, Bartlett says that he's an uh, illegitimate child of Babe Ruth. I don't know. <laughs> That's like I said. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where his where he was coming from. He even admits that a lot of times he was reaching here. But I don't, honestly, I don't remember any ever seeing Glenn Ruth in other matches. So uh, this was a way to set up, uh, keep that, uh, uh, that, situation going on between him and Shawn Michaels as they'd uh, split it, uh, splintered off. They'd uh, had blown up there and, uh, you know, they were going to be meeting soon. And I think they're going to have another phone call. This was another, like we said, we had another technique of guys just calling in. Oh, here we go. Yeah, and as I misspoke there before, I think I mentioned that Brett was the Intercontinental. He was, of course, the champion at the time, but I told you, a little cold medicine here. But uh, Shawn Michaels, of course, was the Intercontinental champion, putting it on the line at the Royal Rumble. And uh, Sherry was involved in all this, too. As I've talked many times about uh, her contributions to the WWF and uh, crossing that line, into you know the world of superstars she became a legit superstar uh, being at ringside for a lot of these matches and then it was not unusual at all that she would mix it up in every one of those those matches on raw and i'm not quite sure at this time if marty Janetti knew that uh the uh writing was on the wall for him or not but it's amazing how uh, history would would go on here, with with him and the and the Rockers. What happened with Shawn Michaels? Shawn Michaels would become a superstar, and of course go on with the Degeneration X, and of course uh, do the things that he did. But there was still a tough road ahead for him. You know, that was an interesting way to bring in uh, these guys, you know, by phone, via telephone. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised that they didn't do something where they, uh, you know, had them on camera. But these guys were probably, like we said, these guys were working a Monday night in New York. And uh, they had other shows, of course, around the country. And they were all going to be in Sacramento that Sunday for the uh, Royal Rumble. But... uh, you know, it, was, it worked. I think it was a, a good technique. Great way to have these guys come on. I was surprised that this match went on as long as it did. Okay. This thing's going to get over soon. The big cover, punch to the gut, 
Slam to the canvas and it's all over. Somebody's corner, where will it be? Look at this. this so this is a this is a spot for the Royal Rumble. And, and uh, you know, I like the Royal Rumble. I don't know uh, on as far as pay-per-views and your favorites go, but I was a big fan of the Royal Rumble. Hey, who do you think they're talking about? Doink. Who didn't love Doink? Come on. I think that Rob Bartlett would last about, I think, 16 weeks, I think, uh, as he said. Yeah, that looks like a real arm, doesn't it? (laughs) I think they could have gotten a better arm that uh, at least looked kind of real. As they continue to try and put crush over. Never quite understood. Maybe you guys have input on that of why it just didn't happen. Because he had it all. The size. Guys could work. Did okay with his promos. Maybe that was part of it. And then he pulls out the arm. Vince really said he just took his own arm off. Pull that. <laughs> well, how does he have three arms then? <laughs> it's that a, it's a it's a fake arm. <laughs> oh, the humanity. That that rubber arm. Look, they got, it's all hands on deck. You got Sergeant Slaughter out there, Rene Goulet. There's Tony Guerrilla. You know, we just uh, got an episode coming up this week with J.J. Dillon. And uh, I talked about, you know, all of these guys that were backstage, that were, you know, behind the curtain, who were legends in the business. You know, and they... uh, they were agents and execs. Oh, here's a commercial. What do you think this is for? Come on, name it. WWF Mania. Remember that? Uh but anyway, getting back to this, that all these guys were, you know, backstage and, and they were legends in the business, all those guys. But, you know, I was a different generation and I didn't uh, know that much about the history. And here I'm working alongside all these guys. So uh, I, learned, I learned years later or I pick up little pieces here and there as we went along where they'd mentioned something this guy had done. And uh, I, I just wish that I would have had more of an opportunity to have sat down with those guys. And and talk to talk to them about their careers. Had them on as a podcast. Well, who's the, who's that young man? Laid on his payments on his hat.
So that was, you know, that was uh, an interesting way to present that. They had me with the, you know, the earpiece and then uh, Repo Man grabbing it from me. But, uh, you know, that was all live. So thank God everything worked. All right. These things lasted forever. I, I, I bet. Let me see. Let's see. Where are we on time-wise here? Like 27 minutes in, these things go through everything. All right. But me and Gene, nobody did it better when it came to selling a lineup and he just got it right every time great see the vintage WWF jacket I still have one of those somewhere with the uh, authentic WWF patch on there alright let's get to it he's going to do the lineup so, you know, uh, Raw was a promotional tool, but like I said, they did deliver a little more. Yeah, Razor Ramon got the whole shtick going. Got the gold, little curly Q. Mm. You know, even today you see uh, Scott, he's got the toothpick. And I don't know if that's what he likes really having or he's still selling the gimmick. I don't know. <laughs> but he always has a toothpick. God, we got to get, you know, I'm just looking at these guys. I can still get on. Berserker, not Yoko, but Mike Rotundo. We should try and get a hold of him. John Nord. We've had Barry on. Ric Flair. Papa Shango, God. And Ted DiBiase, we're still working on getting him and uh, Ted Jr. on, so. But look at this; these graphics and stuff like this. And I know I talk about production value all the time, but it was really important to me. And I was just always blown away by what they were able to do back then. You have to remember, this is 1993, guys. And, uh, you know, the fact that they had uh, the cutting edge. Whenever something new would come out, they'd get it. And the networks didn't even keep up with them. And then the networks started copying the stuff they were doing. And nobody sold this better, right? Than Gene Okerlund? My goodness. So good. Yeah, see?
So I kind of liked, I liked the way they did these. I mean, it was, as Vince would say, you know, nothing can go wrong, but there was a lot of elements. They didn't know, you know, Rand really didn't know what Randy was going to go or he was going to do. They had to just keep up. And I, and it, and it, added, it really added a, a great edge to this, you know, I mean, just, you know, give you a slice of what was happening right there. And then that's the way we did it. We didn't really know what was going to go on. So we're going to throw it down there. Uh, Randy's going to come out and he's going to be looking for a repo man. And that's it. That's all we would know. And I really liked that because I think it gave it a, a, a real raw edge. I mean, to everything that was going on. There's a lot of these elements that they used I thought really worked well. You know, I do. Now, he came out. I was just surprised. Now, this, you know, Tito Santana would do, you know, anything that they asked him to do. I don't know if he was ever really thrilled with doing El Matador. Um, I know that he loved celebrating his heritage. He was very proud. But I think that in some ways that, um, and, and Bobby Heenan would, you know, ridicule it. And I, I don't know. I don't know if it, it really went over well. I guess I'll leave it at that. It was Ric Flair. We saw him earlier as he uh, came in and interrupted that match with Mr. Perfect. So we, as we continued to, to raise the, the temperature between those two. So you imagine that uh, Mr. Perfect might uh, somehow show up on this? We'll, we'll see, right? So also uh, Rep- Bartlett is talking about how he had a tough time finding a place to park at the Manhattan Center. And uh, the Repo Man's in the building, so keep that in mind. Another little sliver of storyline here. <laughs> and Ric Flair. Versus El Matador. Two great workers. No question, man. Tito Santana could work. So these matches that they had on were, you know, they were good. Tito Santana, man, he was uh, really dedicated to what he did. He was, uh, he saved his money. He took care of his kids. He had kids that uh, all went to college. And now he's a school teacher. He's been a school teacher for years. Lived in New Jersey. Oh, all kind of two there. You know, we, we I've talked about it a few times before that, you know, uh, people like Flair was a gigantic star when it came to the WWE and uh, it just never blew up. You know, he was not that it didn't, uh, you know, he got some big... Uh, matches and and did they you know put him over huge big time but maybe it was just the timing uh, I don't know but it just never really happened everybody wanted to see the big showdown with Hogan and Flair that uh, you know uh, Terry had a lot going on then with movies and everything else happening as they take a little time out here and I mentioned during those breaks they would just kind of keep the match going. Nothing would really happen of consequence. And then they would tell them, okay, we're back in.
Nick Ferrer was in good shape then, though. No question. Big knee to the forehead. And, you know, uh, Ric Flair loved those chops, boy. Just loved to do those chops. It was kind of like a macho, and I don't mean Randy Savage thing. It was like uh, this macho thing of like how many chops you could take. These guys would chop each other till they were bloody raw. Just to show uh, kind of a manly thing. I love what Brett Hitman Hart talks about how he told, told Flair not to do that. He said, no, but it's my thing. It's what I do. Flair was saying, he said, fine. But if you do that to me, I'm going to smack you right in your nose. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Got to go to the count of 10. What? No. Always got to resort to those tactics. Thumb to the eye. Uh-oh. This is not going to go well for Flair. Big high spot. Begging. Uh, Rick was great at that move. I love that. Going up over the top rope. You know who else did that really well? Was Bobby Heenan. Clothesline. Drops him down to that uh, the mat. Um and we were talking about this the other day. I was talking with JJ, uh, which you'll hear in that episode on Wednesday, that you know there were a lot of managers who who were uh, had a lot of wrestling background. JJ, of course, had a, a, a you know a very respectable wrestling career as a tag team and singles matches, but he knew how to handle himself. So when they you know when it time came when he was a manager, he needed to take a bump or whatever. But he could do it, and. Uh, a lot of the uh, the boys, a lot of the uh, professional wrestlers would would tell uh, the stories of just how great, just how great Bobby Heenan was when it came to taking bumps. And if you'll remember, look, you know, think back all the times you'd see him do something in the ring. And in comes Mister Perfect as the brawl continues between these two. So, oh boy, look at big shots! That, you know, these are. Big haymakers. Now comes there's Pat Patterson. He makes an appearance. Sergeant Slaughter once again. All the refs. Oh. Flare on a rampage. You can't keep these two apart. Oh, boy. <laughs> what? <laughs> the mayhem all hands on deck for that one exactly oh my goodness as uh, Vince would say mayhem mayhem Let's see as they kept this bra going. Guys trying to, trying to keep them apart.
This one already kisses a gal in the crowd. <laughs> it's, it's so flare-like. Oh, my. Man. Flair could do it, man. Flair could cut those promos. All right, they get Mr. Perfect out here for a last word. Kind of interesting with the timing here that they'd have this match that uh, would be on Raw that, uh, you know, Flair saying that one of them would be out of the WWE. You think that that if uh, he was going to depart, they would have done it where they could have made some money off of it instead of on a episode of Raw. The loser leaves town match. And of course, we wrap it up. <laughs> As a uh, repo man uh, departs the scene with still in possession of Randy Savage's hat and apparently Rob Bartlett's car. So, there you have it. That's uh, the second Raw uh, from the WWF. And uh, look what it's become uh, over the years. Now, remember, back then, it was only an hour, uh, that whole show. And it was, um, in many ways, a promotional tool. Now, then, it would go on to, of course, become a, a much longer program. Of course, now today, it's three hours, but it would go to two hours for a long time. Uh, before it would become a three-hour program. And that's a lot of programming. I don't know how they do it every week, but it's uh, it's pretty amazing that, that that's what they do. But, you know, these were, uh, there were so many things going on that I, I liked about these programs. And, and we can just go through some of the elements that uh, we saw in just this episode. And remember, this was just the second one that they had done. Uh, you know, first you've got, uh, it was uh, guys that were involved in these who were, um, you know, big time superstars. They put these matches where people could actually see two superstars going at it. And some good, you know, good names. Um, like this one, you know, we, we saw Tito Santana taking out Ric Flair, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, Marty Jannetty was there against uh, the guy Ruth. But, uh, but still, you, you had a lot uh, uh, otherwise involved with these, you know, because, as, as I said, they've got, uh, you know, they had uh, uh, Marty Jannetty there. Bret Hart was there live. But you had Terry Taylor taking on uh, Terry Taylor taking on Mr. Perfect, which was you know that was a good match. So you got to see some of the high level talent for these that people got to you know see these guys on television, and it wasn't just these squash matches that they were used to seeing or these dark bad dark matches from uh, that we had from primetime uh, wrestling. So it was a period where they really began to uh, understand what you know, the money-making power of, of television that, uh, you know, it wasn't just the numbers they could get and, and, and that they would make money from pay-per-view, but also these network contracts like with USA and, um, you know, TNT, they're on TNT for a while. And that's, that was, 
uh, you know, became huge for them. Um, you know, the, and especially when the WCW started competing with them. And it was good for the business all the way around. We know the 83 weeks, but that was good for both sides because it really forced the WWF to raise their level of what they did, uh, you know, put on television to entertain people. I mean, every week it became this great competition to uh, try and outdo the other. And believe me, they were watching it. They, they had these uh, on in the locker rooms and people were going back and forth and, and they were watching those meters to see what was working and what wasn't working. And so all the way around, it just, it just raised the level of entertainment for everybody because, uh, you know, on the Saturday mornings or when they had, you know, Superstars and Challenge on, it was, uh, that wasn't the concern. The concern with those programs was to get people to watch, uh, to go to the, you know, in person, go to these house shows or to sell some kind of product they were doing, Ico Pro or whatever it was. That's what those programs were all about. It was a promotional tool. But these were completely different. You know, they were, you know, programs that uh, it was a ratings war. So you had to give something to people, you know, compelling for them to want to watch. They didn't want them turning the channel. And uh, it forever changed the way uh, WWE programmed their, their product out there, you know. And, and putting, uh, you know, good angles out there and storylines. And they also realized that people would still show up to these house shows. It wasn't that, uh, you know, they're going to give away, uh, you know, the, everything in, uh, on television. They could uh, put these guys against you, each other, and people would like these superstars and then want, would show up to see them at these house shows. So it was a, a time when, when the company was evolving. Uh, remember, it's uh, 93 here, so it was... Um, you know, things would not go well over the next couple of years for the WWF, WWE, uh, with all the stuff that Vince was dealing with, and he was contemplating what was going to happen because the government was after him. And uh, he really thought that he might be doing some time because he figured if the United States government goes after you and spends all that kind of money and, and devotes all those kind of the kinds of resources to getting you, they're going to get you on something. Even, even if he didn't do anything, he just felt that they were going to find something that was going to uh, jeopardize his company. It got to the point where he was trying to figure out who he would leave at the helm. Uh, you know, he had, uh, that uh, um, Jerry Jarrett was going to you know, run the company, or was it going to be even you know J.J. Dillon, or you know that they were going to be going, uh, J.J. talks about how <laughs> that him and Pat would be going to the prison to take notes to you know, like, like some kind of mafia Don or something. But it was a, an interesting time for the, the, the WWF and uh, it would end up being great for the company eventually because they would get into this competition with uh, the WCW and, and eventually come out on top uh, forever and Vince taking over everything and buying WCW and everything that went with it. But then there were some trying times for Mr. McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation, World Wrestling Entertainment. And uh, it was good all the way around. It, it changed the, the business professional wrestling forever. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that watch along. I'm sorry I was a little under the weather, uh, but uh, we've got a lot more of these coming up. We're going to be doing them every week. Hopefully, I can bring you some insight to uh, these programs that maybe you didn't know about and uh, gives you a chance to take a look at some of this stuff because uh, there was a lot going on behind the scenes. And uh, really, really, I enjoyed uh, uh, doing this episode of Raw. We'll do more Raw, but of course, we're going to be doing other ones. Uh, again, we'll do Saturday Night Main Events and uh, even maybe some Primetime Wrestling. We've got uh, Tuesday Night Titans. And like I said, I've just uh, I heard that they're going to be putting more vintage stuff on there maybe some challenge episodes so we've got a lot to work with here as long as you keep uh listening i will continue to do them all right so thanks for tuning in this time and uh until the next one next monday uh, at 6 a.m we'll have another edition of network classics ptsm uh, until then i'm sean mooney and i am out 